for the abbot. Would, would you open us with a prayer? Um, Nelson, you say the prayer today, okay? And that's good. I was trying to punt that to next week. Okay, okay, I'll go. <laughs> <laughs> In the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for all graces you've given us and continue to give us. Most of all, the gift of your Son, incarnate, crucified, and risen. Risen for the world and risen for us individually. We give you thanks for the Eucharist, the prolongation of that great mystery, for your invitation to come into the Eucharist and participate in your Trinitarian life. We ask you to continue to draw us deeper and deeper into this mystery as you form us more and more into images of your only begotten Son, Jesus Christ. We pray all of this through the intercession of our Blessed Mother as we pray. Hail Mary, Mary full, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed, blessed art thou among women, and, and blessed, blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. St. John Paul II. Pray for us. Welcome back to Theology of the Eucharistic Table podcast. I'm here with the whole crew, with Ben, Caleb, Brother Israel, and Father Abbott. Father Abbott, you just got back from a trip to Rome. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Well, Rome is still there. And uh, I, w- I went there for the celebration of the 125th anniversary of Sant'Anselmo, the Benedictine University in Rome, where I taught for some 22 years before I was elected abbot. I don't know if you guys remember, but I, I used to be here only half the school year, and uh, I would teach one semester here each year and one semester in Rome. So I was invited back to participate in that celebration. I gave an address to the faculty uh, on my many years at San Anselmo, and and then uh, Pope Francis received us in audience in the Vatican, and that was really exciting, beautiful moment. Uh, he said all sorts of flattering things about Benedictines, and the importance of uh, our, among other things, the importance of the Benedictine contribution to education. So that was very nice. I got to meet the Pope one on one, and you know, just you have thirty seconds with him, so you got to think of what you're going to say in advance and. I told him, you know, I'm an abbot of a monastery of 50 monks in the United States and uh, 170 seminarians from 25 dioceses. I said, we send you our greetings and our love. And he gave me a big smile and and said, send my greetings back to all of them. So then I was at a number of advisory meetings uh, for for the school. And also because I'm still an advisor to the Congregation of Liturgy in the Vatican, uh, the people that were working there knew that and had me over for a day of of uh, letting me give opinions on things that used to happen. When I lived in town, I used to go across town for meetings. Now I came from Oregon for a brief meeting. and So that's what it was, uh, a Rome, lovely springtime weather. Uh, very nice to be back. 
Father, were you able to spread the word about our podcast while you were there? Are, are Romans <laughs> listening to us? You know what? Uh, you should have told me before I went. that I, that Those things don't occur to me, you know. It's too bad, but... Uh, I can I can send emails to several people that will help it get into the Italian mainstream. It'll be a great help to the Italians, I think, probably. <laughs> Next Thank time you have 30 seconds with Pope Francis, you can tell him to. Yeah, be, are you listening to our podcast, Holy Father? Yeah. Do you miss going back and forth? Do you miss spending a lot of time in Rome? Um, I miss it without missing it, if that means anything. Uh, I loved my time in Rome. Uh, was really rich. What I liked especially were my students who would in any time be from 30 different countries. And uh, that was just wonderful and exciting. And I miss that. But oh, I don't have it anymore and it's okay. I have something going on here. So, you know, uh, it was a it was a great large chunk of my life. Uh, I found it interesting and a privilege to to be an active participant in the Vatican congregation to which I was an advisor in the in the liturgy uh I still am from afar but it's a little more interesting and and real when you're sitting around a table there in the Vatican and and doing that with the officials of the congregation so that's a you know there's a sort of high energy ecclesial uh sense that you have when you're there doing that but I had plenty of it, so in that sense, I don't miss it. But it, it's something I remember very fondly. I don't feel like, oh, thank God that's over, you know. So that's what I mean. I, I don't miss it, but I do, you know. Well, thank you for sharing a little bit of your experience with us. We have a, a podcast to present today on the second master theme on the Word of God. But before we do, we do have a, a question from a listener. So this is the first time that we're sitting down together and recording since our podcast started being released, and we've released three of them, and we've received some good feedback, and also our first question here, our first theological question, coming from Jesse Bauer in Albany, in Oregon, here nearby. A further question I've had for Abba Jeremy comes from something he said from episode two, which stuck with me. He mentioned the liturgy wars that happen somewhat frequently among Catholics at the parish level. He mentioned that many of us might have the notion that our liturgy isn't focused on God enough and that we must also see and appreciate and allow in the liturgy the fact that God is doing things in his people and that the people have a real role. I'd love to hear him expand on this. As someone who loves the liturgy and is seeking to get that balance right, I don't think I've ever heard this before quite the way Abba Jeremy stated it. I tend to think that you can't ever focus on God enough and that the more you focus on God, the better and more heaven-like our liturgy will be. Is there a risk of giving the people too much focus in liturgy? What's a good balance? Well, that's a good question, and it picks up on something I already said briefly, uh, but probably need to go over it again. My point there was that uh, to, to set it up as, should we focus on God or on people, is setting it up wrong. That sets the question up wrong. And the liturgy wars come from setting it up in those terms. Uh, in fact, I want the liturgy itself to instruct us on what the balance should be. And the balance is, in fact, that we're looking toward God uh, we're actually looking toward God by looking toward Christ and and with him being turned toward his Father. 
So that's all attention on God, on Christ, or attention on God through Christ. And the liturgy is doing that. But what you see uh, when you do that is the way in which God, through Christ, looks at us and affects a lot in us, changes us completely and regards us with incredible love and recreates us in, in, a, in a new level of dignity in his presence, such that we're taken up into shares in the Trinitarian life, which is God's life. So there's this tremendous merging between God and the people. Uh, to set it up in terms of wars, war, too much attention on God, too much attention on the people, that's like, that's like pre-Christian religious gatherings in which you'd go, okay, we don't know anything about God, so we're going to gather and try to reach God. So then all your attention would be on God, not on the people. But that, that doesn't have any of the gospel in it. That doesn't have any of what God has done for us in it. So when you, when you come more concretely into religion shaped by us looking at God through Christ, then what we cannot help but do is look at ourselves as renewed in God. And, and the liturgy does that all the time. And you, you hear it in, if you, you, could, you could go through all the texts of the liturgy, not to mention all the actions of the liturgy, and see how often they're referring to the assembly, how often the assembly itself is speaking through the texts of the liturgy, and it's speaking about the transformation work in us. And you could say in one sense that the whole liturgy concludes with the distribution of Holy Communion, the body and blood of the Lord. Well, there all our attention is focused on Christ, but it is given to us, and we become one body with Christ. So you don't just see Christ. You see us transformed in him. So that's people and God has made one. Maybe use the marriage imagery, that you, that you wouldn't, you wouldn't just look at one piece of the couple. <laughs> You're looking at the couple. This is Christ and his bride, the church. He doesn't want to be seen without the bride. The bride doesn't want any to look at anyone but him. And that's the reality, you know, So something like that. Hope that helps. <laughs> Yeah, thank you. You know, it'd be interesting to see what an example of giving too much attention to the people would be. Um, we were in class, uh, ministry to the sick and dying, and uh, a question was posed to the to the professor, and uh, and he gave a funny example about you know where to set limits, and he said you know if if a pastor says to you, okay, you recite this part of the consecration. And then I'll recite this part of the consecration, and we'll just kind of go back and forth. And you know, as as still non ordained men, or even if we were ordained, you know, that would that would be a, a clear violation, a, a clear aberration happening right there. And maybe that's what people—it's things like that. People would say, like, "Oh, that's giving too much focus on the people," because now, you know, the people are the ones who are deciding what happens and what doesn't happen. 
But in that particular case, it's just, it's not even a question of, you know, focus on people, focus on God. There's just something wrong there. Do you think it's, do you think the question like this comes from out of those experiences? Yeah, it, it could come from out of those experiences, you know, because the insight that I'm giving is an insight that we should already be able to derive from the liturgy as it is supposed to be celebrated. <laughs> you have to trust the church's rubrics. Those are so, there's a lot more there than we realize. So you, you just celebrate according to the rubrics. There's nothing stiff about that. That protects the truths and it protects the balance of the truths. Uh, so, so you don't have to say, oh, wow, I love that insight about focus on the people. Let's tweak the liturgy so that that comes out even more. Well, when you do that, then you ruin it. I'm not saying tweak the liturgy so that that comes out. I'm saying if you read the liturgy at, at its depth, that balance is there. Uh, but what I, I'm insisting on the balance. I'm not just saying, hey, you got liturgy down. If, you, if you, all you do is focus on God, you missed the point. At the same time, if you tweak it around in such a way that all you're doing is looking at people without all that God has done to transform the people. So, so just trust the shape of the liturgy and its rubrics. Rubrics are full of theology. I think I've maybe I've said that in, in one of the episodes or something that, or I've said it somewhere recently that I'd like to give a course on the theology expressed in rubrics. Uh, there's, a, there's a lot there, but that, that's another topic. We won't get on onto that here. You know. Thank you so much, Father Abbott, and thank you again, Jesse, for your question. And anyone else listening out there, if you'd like to ask a question to Abbott Jeremy, just email it to us. And now we will play a recording from a few weeks ago when we talked about the second master theme, the Word of God. Well, I think we better jump right into the master theme, otherwise we probably won't get to it. Okay. So the second master theme, the Word of God and this as understood in dynamic relation to sacraments. So first of all, what do you mean by the Word of God? Um, very simply, in, in this master theme, I'm talking about Scripture. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, you know, one of, the, one of the major topics of study in, in the, the Theological Academy is Scripture. So it's a question of Scripture, and I want to talk about how Scripture uh, relates and fits in with the, with the rest of theology. So that's, that's the topic. Are there other ways in which the term Word of God is used? Sure. Uh, it's, a, it's a title for Christ. It's a title for the second person of the Trinity. And by extension, it, it's... Uh, so, I mean, and that's in, in some, some way, that's its essential meaning. Uh, title for the second person of the Trinity. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh. So all that stands behind the Word of God, the, the words in the book of the Bible. Mm -hmm. And so it's about what is the relationship. Uh, when you start talking about Scripture, you're going to very quickly get to what is the relationship to the words of the Bible with the reality of God as Word and as Word become flesh. 
So there's that more original sense of that. But as a master theme in the Theological Academy, uh, that what I just said about Word of God as a title for Christ, that is, as it were, is Christology. Whereas Word of God, meaning Scripture, the topic is Scripture. So usually, so most fundamentally, Word of God means Christ, and an access that we have to Christ is the Scriptures. And so in this master theme, when you say Word of God, you're narrowing in that particular use of the term. That's right, yeah. And this is understood in dynamic relation to sacrament. What do you mean by that? Yeah, I think that for me, this is one of the uh, one of the unique things about my own presentation of uh, of how I want to study scripture in an academic setting by saying that we should always view it in a relationship with something else. I use the word dynamic in the sense that there is a drive within the, the, the scriptural word. There is a drive to something more, and that drive is toward sacramental celebration. So from the, from the get-go, by presenting scripture not by itself, which is the tendency of the academy is to present scripture by itself, but from the very beginning presenting scripture in, in, I don't care what part of the scripture you're in, you're going to find in it this drive towards something more. And if you, if, if, you, if you don't see that from the start, then scripture risks what we see happening all the time in the academy, becoming a topic all of its own, uh, where that is with difficulty related to the rest of the things that you find in the in the academy, uh, namely liturgical celebrations and the use of scripture in liturgical celebrations, or namely in the in theology, you find all sorts of doctrinal speculation and tradition, and uh, you find trinitarian speculation. You find prayer and holiness and people praying with the scriptures in ways far beyond what the original historical context could have meant you find everything and if you don't if you don't see that this you the reason there's all that rest in theology is because there's this drive inside scripture itself then scripture is not going to be able to relate itself to the rest of theology and i think it's a problem uh that i'm hoping that this point of view goes a long way to solving that problem. And in short, I am saying Scripture drives towards sacrament, and Scripture isn't fully understood till we see it becoming sacrament. And by the same token, sacraments don't exist without their birth in the Scripture. Now suppose over over the next break or something, I'm... I'm talking with some seminarians from a different seminary who haven't had the chance to go to your Introduction to Theology class and hear this. And we're talking about Scripture, and they, the, the only approach that they've been given to Scripture is that, that most common one in the academy. Um, what, what's a good approach to, <clears throat> other, other than 
what you just explained, um, how the pointing out the the difficulties with um, the most common approach to scripture outside of the liturgy. What's what's a good approach to try to show them the importance of looking at scripture, looking at the Word of God as it is spoken to us in the liturgy? Yeah. Well, there there are all kinds of good approaches. <laughs> there really are. And I think, you know, this is what I imagine seminarians from Mount Angel in dialogue with their colleagues from other seminaries really bring in a, I, I, I find this just such an exciting contribution, really, full of potential. But one of the ways you could do it is just uh, by observing the way in which the liturgy itself uses the biblical word. It doesn't use the biblical word. Uh, in, in the liturgy, we don't read the Bible, start at Genesis, read the whole darn thing straight through, and finally get to the end several years later. We, in the liturgy, read passages of the Bible very carefully placed at particular points in time. And you, you, could, you could go for the, the strongest example toward the center of the liturgical year uh, inside the, the Paschal Triduum. Really, that those uh, and culminating in in the Paschal Vigil, so that you have in the Paschal Vigil, in a sense, you have a representative celebration of the scriptural word uh, in the liturgy of the word of the Paschal Vigil. Uh, so, if you if you do something like that, you say, look look at how the church uses the Bible. That's how the Bible is to be understood in the way that the church uses it in, in her prayer. And notice that the liturgy is not over when the liturgy of the word is over. Uh, when the liturgy of the word is over, it goes toward the liturgy of the sacrament. Uh, if, if you stay inside the example of, of the Paschal Vigil, you have seven long readings from the Old Testament. Why? Every one of them is a representative piece of different kinds of different moments in literature of the Old Testament. But the church is reading it here and now as delivering a living event that, that those words of the Bible speak about. But ultimately they culminate... Well, they culminate in New Testament readings, okay? So we learn something also about the Bible there, that Old Testament leads us through the apostle to the proclamation of resurrection gospel. So this is, this is, this is, this is the church alive inside the biblical word. But when that's over, what happens in the same liturgy? People get baptized and people come to Eucharist. And the word is what led them there and, and keeps them there. And so if you let's just go back let's go back now to the just the Bible. If if all you see in the first reading is creation. So okay, you read the creation account of the Bible, understand the text, understand where that came from. Great. Uh you you want but what it ultimately is connected to is resurrection and people being baptized into new life. That's what it ultimately is. Second reading, read the Abraham cycle. Abraham's interesting. That's old stuff. That's fascinating biblical text. But ultimately, what Abraham is about 
is the promises made to Abraham and his descendants are realized in this assembly tonight when people get baptized and come to Eucharist and so on. And you've got to be able to do that with every piece of the Bible. And we don't, we don't, know, we don't do that very well. And uh, this is, I, I'm getting stirred up, sorry, but this, 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 this is my project as a theologian is to, is to help people see this and, and, and come to it, you know. So. Thank you. I think I speak for the three of us and for our entire class that we want you to get stirred up. <laughs> so this is, a, is kind of a observation and there might be a question in there but I'm not sure you 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 mentioned that one one of the features of of this particular theme is noting how the church reads the bible in the context of the liturgy um and one thing that came to mind automatically was one way the church doesn't use them in the context of a liturgy and it's as a proof text so in a sense you know, we don't read the words of institution and say, see, it's in the Bible, therefore it must be true. Um, therefore, the Eucharist is the body and blood of Jesus Christ. Um, so that's that's the, the observation part of it. Um, so then the question part is, what is it about that approach of the Bible, which I think is, I mean, it's important to kind of validate our, the life of, you know, our faith. It, I think that's kind of the drive there, the, the desire to see my life of faith now as already in the Bible, you know, that continuity there, and it expresses itself when I say, well, it's in the Bible, look, verse so-and-so. Um, so there, I guess there's a legitimate way of using the Bible in, in that way, but why is that ultimately deficient? If if maybe deficient is too strong of a word, but... yeah, Well, um, proof texting is um can be a, an important part of theology but uh proof texting doesn't work i don't think well i don't think it's good theology if you just say this is in the bible see and then you have a text there that sort of says what you want your argument to say mm-hmm. you ultimately if you're going to use a text of the bible in a, in a, as a sort of cinch, cinching up a theological argument of some sort, then you have to know how does the, how does the liturgy itself use that text? How is that text understood in its liturgical context? Uh, because otherwise you risk just taking, taking a biblical text and saying, see, that's in from the Bible, to which I, I would want to say, so what? Mm. It's in the Bible. How are you understanding the text? How, what does the text mean? What has it meant to the community through the centuries? If you don't know that, it's not impressive to me that you found a text in the Bible that says something like you want to argue. Mm. So, uh, but let, let's, I mean, good examples of proof texting are during the Christological controversies uh, of the 4th century. Uh, they, uh, they were using biblical texts to promote uh, contradictory Christological opinions. 
and they could, they would find the text that said what they wanted the text to say. Uh, but what was happening there, a lot of the times, uh, especially by the, the, the positions that didn't carry the day, is the particular text in question was not read in the context of the church's life. And the Bible is the context of the church's life. Um, it's a, it, it makes me think maybe, maybe this would be this is still part of the answer. But I'll come back to what Benjamin asked me earlier because I got I got off of. I said you know one way of showing your colleagues that come from a different sort of background in in uh, regards to scripture would be to to take up the lectionary uh, and show them how the church uses that. But another way is to study the Bible itself for for the. It, for the way in which it, it itself was put together for liturgical settings. Israel herself put the text together so that the text could be read in the assembly. And the New Testament texts themselves were read in liturgical assemblies. Very, very definitely the gospel texts were produced to be read in liturgical assemblies. S- in with the with the point being this gospel text read is how the risen Christ makes himself present here and now to this assembly. So the liturgical origins of the biblical text itself, we've lost track of that. But but this this is this is how the Bible should be studied and is studied in some quarters. And it's how I hope we're studying it here more and more. So that you see, the reason the the Bible has the very shape it has is because it was put together by communities that were proclaiming the text as a living word of God. So that's another whole way. So uh, that brings me back to, so if you're going to proof text from such a text, and you can, you will do that better and more coherently if you're aware of the liturgical origins of the text in the first place. And you won't, you won't misuse it, as it were, either. So it sounds like, as a consequence of the way you just answered, Father, it sounds like the, the point of reference has shifted, uh, shifted when, we, when we try to read the scriptures in this way. So now the scriptures need something outside of the scriptures, something beyond uh, so, so, of course, we read Scripture in light of Scripture. We read the canon in light of the canon. But in order to read the canon in light of the canon, we need a broader context. That um, that context being the church, which... Would that be a proper way of phrasing what you just said? Yeah, it is. It's... Uh, the. Uh, I guess what I'm I'm saying is needed is a, a lot of context for Scripture, context in the strong sense of something that goes with the text. Context, what goes with the text of Scripture? I'm emphasizing liturgy, but when I say you need liturgy, basically I mean you need the ecclesial context. You need the context of the church's life, and. It's the church's life, and by the church's life, I don't mean, oh, what, what are, what's everyone in the church thinking? By the church's life, I mean the way 
in which the risen Christ and his spirit live in the church and guide the church in continuity through the centuries with the apostolic church. That's all context for this text. And so the scriptural text, the reason I I kind of naturally go to liturgy for to, to, to say that that's where the heart of the ecclesial context is, but what you have in the liturgy is the atmosphere in which what the scriptures are talking about was produced and also interpreted. Uh, but it's not the only atmosphere. All of that's called, uh, we had that in class two, I don't think we brought it up really uh, uh, strongly in, in, in the context of this conversation, but you have the rule of faith. Uh, remember that definition I gave you, uh, originally a brief, fluid, verbal summary of the apostolic faith about Jesus and, and about the Trinity. Eventually, uh, uh, being the, the subtext of the creeds. So the, the creeds are, are ecclesial context. That they're not something in addition to scripture. Cyril of Jerusalem put it very nicely. They're scripture reduced to one page. This creed is scripture reduced to one page. But creed's not a text either. Creed is the faith of the church expressed. And ultimately, the creed is a, is a baptismal creed, which is to say, liturgically, I express my faith in what this text lets me say. But it's not the text. It's the f- living faith of the church, to which, in the baptismal context, I say, I believe and then I'm plunged into that text. I'm plunged into that mystery. So, if you take that, take the creed is summarizing in one page the whole of Scripture. Okay, well, I need the ecclesial context for the creed. That's where the creed was carried verbally in, a, in an oral tradition. That's where the creed is produced in a council, but ultimately a council is, is not, it's not a meeting of a whole bunch of bishops. It, it's ultimately the, the presiders of communion, the presiders of local Eucharistic assemblies coming together to agree on the basis of their Eucharistic experience and the communion of their Eucharistic experience it's all of them coming together to say, here's what the scriptures mean. God, the Father, creator of heaven and earth, Jesus Christ, his son, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, consubstantial, uh, incarnate of the Virgin Mary. I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe in... The... That's, that's the ecclesial life. It's all in the scriptures. But with, without that ecclesial context, the scriptures aren't enough. So that's, that's where I'm going with that. You know, uh, I'm thinking of a video we saw for class not too long ago. In this video, uh, it's a Protestant pastor using uh, texts from the letter to the Hebrews to argue against the celebration of the Eucharist. 
So Catholic Mass. So, you know, we're sitting there uh, listening to the pastor make his argument, especially from that passage that speaks about the sacrifice of Jesus the high priest being offered once and for all. Uh, chapter 10 of the letter to the Hebrews. <laughs> Thinking about that now uh, in in the context of this this conversation and your comments, Father. You know, it strikes me now. He's using these passages to explain, you know, how the Catholic Mass is an aberration. Uh, <laughs> so it strikes me now that, you know, the author of the letter to the Hebrews is writing these words, he finishes the letter, and then he goes off to celebrate the Eucharist. Is that sort of what you mean when you speak about the Eucharistic context? Yeah, that, that would be a very good example, because uh, the, the Catholic Church uses the same text to explain precisely why she does celebrate Eucharist. And it also explains Eucharist in a way uh, that if... If, you know, that's a classical Protestant misunderstanding of Eucharist. And on the basis of the Hebrew text, Catholics explain, no, that's not what we mean. What, what, uh, what Protestants are concerned about is that the sacrifice of Christ is being offered again and again. Well, uh, Catholics have never understood the Eucharist to, uh, to, to be that. Precisely because the ecclesial context of, of Catholicism felt required to remain coherent with this text, and, and did, and knew that its Eucharistic life, of course, was in communion with this text. And, and Eucharist was there from the start of the Church, and the sacrificial understanding of Eucharist was there from the start. Well, this can be demonstrated as part of apostolic faith which, you know, was broken in the minds of people. And, you know, if, if Catholics believed what Protestants thought they believed, there would be reason to object. Uh, but that, that's, you know, there's one sacrifice. It has been offered once and for all. The Eucharist is that one sacrifice and our communion in it. Oh. Anyway. I was just reading something from your book, Father Abbott, that um, I think connects with what you were just sharing, that here the believer realizes that Scripture is not so much a book as a living word from God, a word which, when announced in the assembly, defines the very event that is, God, that is underway. It is God's intervention and offer of salvation in the here and now of a particular assembly. So I think that's a good um, discussion of the second master theme. And maybe we'll pause here and pick it up next time. Okay. Thank you, guys. Hey, thank you for joining us for another episode of Theology at the Eucharistic Table. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast. That way you'll never miss an episode. And be sure you listen to our previous episodes if you haven't already. If the Spirit so moves you, Go ahead and share the good news about this podcast with your friends, whether they're from church, youth group, uh, ministry, work. Let them know. Maybe they'll find something here that'll help nourish them as well. 
We hope you enjoyed our conversation today. We'd also like to invite you to join us more actively in the conversation by submitting any questions you might have that the Abbot can consider, or if you'd like to give us some feedback on how we're doing. Let us know. We really want to hear back from you. Make sure you visit our website, www.theologyatmtangel.com. So that's theologyatmtangel.com. Or you can send us an email directly, theology at mtangel.edu. Again, thank you for joining us. Thank you for your support. Thank you for your prayers. And until next time, God bless.